What is behind the migrant crisis in Europe? Could the onslaught of refugees fleeing war-torn areas be part of an engineered strategy? How does the migrant crisis in Europe play to the advantage of the U.S.? What would the consequences of the migrant wave be for the economics and politics of Europe? Is there a way to challenge open-door policies to migrants that does not contribute to racist and xenophobic political parties and sentiment? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we examine the role of the migrant crisis in Europe, both as a predictable consequence of U.S. NATO military adventures and as geostrategy. Our guests for the hour include Toronto-based journalist Barry Zwicker and former U.S. State Department official, whistleblower, and author J. Michael Springman. On this week's program, Rethinking Europe's Migrant Crisis, Weapons of Mass Movement, Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 29th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied Anishinaabe Akin, the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territory of the Nihiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. The nation's Supreme Court is stacked with right-wing extremists. On Tuesday, they upheld Trump's travel ban, affecting five predominantly Muslim countries, along with North Korea, and targeted Venezuelans by a narrow five-to-four majority, wrongfully claiming, quote, the government has set forth a sufficient national security justification to survive rational basis review, unquote. No such justification exists. Trump's Muslim ban is an extension of his war on Islam, far exceeding his predecessors in terror-bombing ruthlessness. His regime is responsible for dropping powerfully destructive bombs in targeted countries every 12 minutes since taking office, a breathtaking pace of mass slaughter and destruction, 44,000 bombs during his first year in office, civilians overwhelmingly harmed most. That comes from the article, Supreme Court Upholds Trump's Travel Ban, by Stephen Ledman, posted June 27th. A recent report published for Congress by the Government Accountability Office found that of the 85 deadly attacks by violent extremists since 9-11, far-right violent groups were responsible for 73%, while radical Islamist extremists were responsible for 27%, a margin of almost 3 to 1. Moreover, an analysis of every terrorist attack carried out on U.S. soil during the past 20 years revealed that Trump's Muslim ban would have saved zero lives over his time frame, Over this time frame. Yes, you read that right, zero. Preventing terrorism was never the aim of this ban. However, it was always about rewarding the Islamophobia industry for its patronage of Trump's presidential campaign, along with the slice of white America that hates everyone and anyone who doesn't look or sound like them. That comes from the article, Anti-Muslim Bigotry is Now U.S. Law, 
by C.J. Whirlman, posted June 27th, originally appearing at Middle East Eye. Former CIA director Michael Hayden tweeting out a picture of the Birkenau concentration camp over the words, other governments have separated women and children, unquote, suggested an answer. We were planting the seeds that could make us the new Nazi Germany. But let me assure you, much of what we saw in these last weeks with those children had its origins in policies and quote-unquote laws so much closer to home than Germany three-quarters of a century ago. If you wanted to see where their ravaging really began, you needed to look elsewhere, which surprisingly enough, no one has, specifically to those who created the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility. From its inception, beyond the reach of American courts, or in any normal sense, justice, this prison camp set the stage structurally, institutionally, and legally for what we've just been witnessing at the border. That comes from the article, A Children's Gitmo on the Border, Heartless America's Latest Nightmare, by Karen J. Greenberg, posted June 27th, originally appearing at Tom Dispatch. The decline of the trade unions and worse, their loss of militancy has led to the loss of solidarity with people living in the midst of imperial wars. Many workers in the imperialist countries have directed their ire to those, quote unquote, below, the immigrants, rather than to the imperialists who directed the wars which created the immigration problem. Immigration war, the demise of the peace and workers' movements and left parties has led to the rise of the militarists and neoliberals who have taken power throughout the West. Their anti-immigrant politics, however, has provoked new contradictions within regimes between business elites and among popular movements in the EU and the US. The elite and popular struggles can go in at least two directions, toward fascism or radical social democracy. That comes from the article, Immigration, Western Wars and Imperial Exploitation Uproot Millions, by Professor James Petrus, posted June 27th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Europe is now into the fourth year of the biggest wave of refugees and migrants to arrive on its shores since the Second World War. According to the UN Refugee Agency, 45,012 people have risked their lives crossing the Mediterranean Sea in 2018 alone. These migrants include not only traditional asylum seekers, but also economic migrants. The displaced populations are mostly from majority Muslim countries in Southwest Asia and Africa. European countries have opened their doors to these individuals, but unfortunately, the entrance of these strangers have not always been welcome. The arrival of these newcomers has been disruptive to many and may be contributing to the rise in popularity of political parties on the right, which are calling on closing their borders to them. In the wake of this surge of humanity on European shores comes a book by J. Michael Springman entitled Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos? Merkel's Migrant bomb, that being a reference to the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who is seen as championing her country's open-door policy. The book challenges a lot of our assumptions and ambitions when it comes to refugee policy and its role in enabling a more secure world. 
We'll air an interview recorded with Mr. Springman a little later in the program, but first I wanted to speak with a former guest who had a chance to read and review the book a year ago. His name is Barry Zwicker. Toronto-based Barry Zwicker is a frequent guest of this program, a veteran print and broadcast journalist and media critic. He's perhaps best known in recent years for his work researching 9-11 and challenging the official story of the so-called War on Terrorism. A year ago, Barry had written a review of Michael Springman's book for the site Truth and Shadows. He joins us now to talk about the book and the themes running through it. Great to have you back, Barry. Well, very good to be with you, Michael. Thank you. Could you tell me, have you ever met uh, Michael Springman in person? Uh, indeed, I have. Uh, I was thinking back when you asked me uh, to be in a conversation here with you about Michael and his work. Um, it, 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 it something uh, came to me that I'd, I'd forgotten, which is that my first, uh, my first awareness of Michael Springman came from a CBC radio program. Uh, it's a program called uh, Dispatches. Uh, I think it closed down in 2014 after hundreds of episodes. And Dispatches was hosted by, Mike, uh, by Rick McKinnis-Ray. Mick, uh, Rick McKinnis-Ray was a former student of mine when I taught journalism oh, really? at Ryerson. <laughs> and what's, what struck me about the interview that Rick did with Michael Springman was that Rick broke uh, with the standard uh, mainstream media allergy uh, about interviewing guests uh, who are ready to criticize the American empire, which Mike did. And after I heard that interview, I, I got in touch with Springman. I found out his, about his first book, uh, Visas for Al-Qaeda, and, uh, and uh, I, inter- I reviewed that. And, and then Michael and I, Michael Springman and I have been in touch uh, ever since. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, because of us being in touch, he notified me, among others, about an article that he's had posted on Global Research just this past Tuesday, in which he brings us up to date with his latest thoughts uh, about the uh, crisis of uh, migrants. And, uh, and I, I'm going to maybe even quote from that because... It, it really reflects um, Springman's, uh, re- his expertise. He's a lawyer, after all. He knows the immigrant, um, asylee, um, migration file inside out, have, have, having worked for the State Department, um, having worked in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in the visa section there. And, and he uh, has been posted to Germany, so he's very much uh, able to talk about Germany's uh, migrant crisis and Angela Merkel, and he speaks German, and he's a guy who I notice stays in touch with many sources that he's developed, you might say almost around the world. And so he's a guy I really think should be, should be listened to. Okay. Now, in his book, uh, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, question mark, what is the main takeaway for readers? Well, the main takeaway is that uh, it's really the American empire. I advisedly uh, or purposely use that term um, because I think it's apropos um, that the American empire in league uh, with various allies, uh, regrettably also including Canada, um, 
has created the migrant crisis by interfering in violent ways in Iraq, uh, in Syria, in Libya, and so forth. And th- those countries have been seriously laid waste by, quote, allied, unquote, bombs. And, uh, and uh, many, many people have died. Uh, we could, it goes into the millions, the number of people um, who have been killed in these countries since uh, 9-11, shall we say, to pick one date. And that naturally people flee their country when their homes are being destroyed. So um, it's, it's, uh, that's, the, that's the, the fundamental reason why people risk their lives crossing the Mediterranean. And Michael has always has has always had his eye on that ball, and that is why his voice is not heard so much in the mainstream media. And uh, that that's the the essential point that he is bringing out um, in in uh, his second book. Mm. Maybe by way of, of uh, expanding what you were saying earlier about the the uni- his unique perspective, uh, he's also uh, been a, a fairly prominent uh, voice in contradiction of the official story of the uh, the war on terrorism. I mean, when when you can, I mean, talking about his first book, Visas for Al Qaeda. I mean, he did uh, expose the. Uh, the fact that a lot of these people were, uh, the, the people who were being granted visa were not um, eligible or shouldn't have been eligible. You know, could, could you speak about that, you know, that the, the importance he had in that realm? Well, yes, he, he, he uh, has had the uh, irreplaceable perspective of an insider Imagine working for the State Department inside the visa branch in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Imagine that. Uh, a branch where, according to his book, of the 20 staff members and their wives, only three, including himself, were not affiliated with the CIA or the NSA. In other words, the State Department has virtually been taken over by these giant surveillance uh, and troublemaking agencies. And uh, so, so his perspective is, is uh, virtually unique in that he's that insider. And he's had the courageousness to be a whistleblower about the, what the American empire does. And he himself was asked, was, uh, asked to okay the visas of various young, bearded, uh, uh, you might say Muslim men, uh, to get, gain entry to the USA. And uh, these men that he was directed to okay the visas for um, could not answer elementary questions that he asked. He asked them, for instance, well, where are you going? And uh, they weren't sure what city they wanted to go to in the USA. He said, why are you going? Well, they couldn't really account for it. They said they're going to a convention. What convention? Well, they couldn't tell. So in other words, they were just being fit. These, these were people who had been selected by the CIA and the like uh, to go to the USA for training in terrorism, in false flag ops and so on. And the, um, 
and the handlers hadn't even taken the trouble to give them a decent story to tell the visa application officer, who happened to be Michael Springman. And when Springman uh, said to his superiors, who were telling him that he has to approve these, he said, I don't want to. And he was told, well, you do, you do so or you'll be let go. And he was let go. So, so uh, he, he represents a truth seer and a truth seeker and a truth teller uh, within the American empire, and there are very few such people. And this then cast serious doubt on the whole of the so-called war on terror, which uh, he, conti- he has continuously said is, uh, is a um, synthetic production um, that causes, uh, you know, that divides the world into, into good guys and bad guys, and, and is fundamental to the American empire's depredations in the Middle East, far in Africa, and and elsewhere, and uh, so so he has a, a truly global perspective, but he's gained it through inside knowledge of how the American empire works. Mm-hmm. Now I, I know reading through the book. Uh, as somebody who positions himself on the left, and I, I believe you also position yourself uh, on the left, uh, more or less, and it, it just seems to me that there there could be uh, there there are some critical perspectives put forward about the the policy of uh, just opening the doors to people, and it, it can be troubling for some of us on the left because you know our our instinct is to have uh, you know collectively respond to people who are. In uh, dire straits, uh, you know, regardless of, of what their backgrounds might be, are, are you concerned at all? Is there a hazard that uh, the Springman's work might be misinterpreted as a, a defense of xenophobia or, or Islamophobia toward vulnerable populations? Well, there is that danger for sure, um, and um, this is very. This this uh, matter of immigration um, of various kinds. I mean, there are refugees, there are asylum seekers, um, there are economic refugees, there are uh, there are various categories of of human beings. So you might say you could categorize them who need to escape, want to escape uh, their country um, because they're in danger, their lives are in danger, or their homes have been destroyed, or whatever, and so. I think it, you might almost call it a human instinct, especially among those on the left, among those people who are humanitarian, among those people who have a global view of things, and uh, and and a concern that we be all that we all be good global citizens. Uh, there's a great sympathy for for such people, but um, but uh, Michael uh, has educated me in appreciating that. We need to not only feel with our heart, but think with our minds about what's happening if we admit, uh, and we, in fact, he's saying we can't admit everyone who wants to immigrate. Let's bring it down to Canada. Cannot um, admit everybody. Uh, it's not possible for us to just have no rules and, um, and not take into account the backgrounds and the situations that these various applicants uh, for um, 
citizenship in our country bring. Uh, and some of them come illegally and then seek refugee status, and they they all have to be uh, they all have to be uh, asked questions about really are they really why why are why are they wanting to to come here, and this in turn makes it a very deep thing for as you put it those on the left, but let me say those of us who who believe that we are humanistic, uh, that we have a larger view, um, we have a compassion for our fellow citizens wherever they are in the world, that we believe in global citizenship, we believe in global peace, for goodness sakes, and justice. Michael Springman can educate us uh, on the legal side and on the human side and on the very large side about about the depredations of the American Empire, that's the missing piece for most people who who don't want immigrants. They 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 just don't know the first thing about the amount of damage that the American Empire has done. You mentioned a couple of uh, concerns about uh, you within your review um, uh, about some of the sourcing, and I noticed that. There was, uh, for example, when he, in, in the discussions about Sylvester 2015, the, uh, the the big the incident on New Year's Eve, which talked about a thousand of these uh, North African and, and Syrian individuals, um, you know, going out on a, a rampage of sexual assault against German women. In a follow-up article uh, that was written by two uh, Dutch journalists for D Correspondent. They discovered that the uh, it was more likely just several dozen as opposed to you know a, a thousand, which is effectively an insurgent army. So uh, you know, but you know that corrects the record of of a thousand that was being published in a lot of these tabloid articles, uh, tabloid newspapers. So I, I'm wondering, as a media critic, you're familiar with the important role played by media in affecting attitudes towards war. And reading Springman's book, do you think he adequately factored in how European distorted or sensationalist media reporting may be impacting public attitudes? Do you think it threatens his thesis in any way? This is a very important factor, of course, in how people, in this case Germans, would react to uh, the large number of migrants that that Merkel uh, did welcome, a million or so. And there would naturally be pushback against that, but pushback was exacerbated uh, by media accounts. And the New Year's, the alleged thousand uh, migrants who were who were uh, assaulting good German women on New Year's is, is a is a really important example. And and I did feel that Michael in his book, Michael Springman in his book, uh, did. Uh, slip into accepting some of these accounts in the so-called popular press when he shouldn't have, and uh, he he did, uh, and I included this in the review, and he he recognized that I was making uh, a valid criticism, which I actually think he's taken into account subsequently, and uh, there there was this uh, quote from the tabloid Bild. B-I-L-D, and uh, it was it was uh, reporting migrant misdeeds 
That's translated from the German, and saying that, according to a secret report that it uh, amazingly got access to when no one else did, that there were specifically, in 2015, 208,344 migrant misdeeds. How would they ever keep stats like that? I don't know. But it, if, if they had, it would be 23 crimes per hour. And allegedly this came from a confidential police report. But, see, unfortunately, Michael uh, quoted that. And so that left me skeptical uh, about um, his, I mean, the build is a crypto-fascist uh, publication. And so I did criticize Michael Springman on, on, that, uh, on that account. And, and then um, in, in, uh, there was another account uh, where allegedly uh, migrants had in, in a little German town called Lostau, L-O-S-T-A-U, that uh, refugees had plundered a petting zoo and slaughtered some goats, and they were eating them around a campfire. Now, any of us uh, soci- uh, who have studied propaganda, our antenna jump way up <laughs> when we see an image like that. Uh, which is portrayed in words, you know, slaughtering goats and eating them around a campfire. You've got to really, really have alarm bells ringing. Is somebody, you know, uh, up to no good here? And indeed, uh, when um, Der Spiegel looked into it, it turned out uh, that there hadn't even been a petting zoo in Lostow for years. And so whoever pulled off that false flag report hadn't even done his or her homework. And this is the stuff we have to be very careful about. And, yeah. um, and so Michael, I think, slipped a bit in that respect. But his, his overall take, which is that the migrants shouldn't have to, have to migrate in such great numbers to begin with, is, is the ball to keep our eye on, I do believe. Yeah, yeah, I'm in, inclined to agree. Uh, now, uh, I'm wondering if, just to, to wrap up, uh, we don't have a lot of time left, but uh, he, it's been a year since uh, his book has been out and, and since you wrote your uh, review. Uh, have there been any developments since then that you think that maybe we should factor into this uh, discussion uh, about well, the migrant crisis and its uh, utilization? Well, uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure how to answer that. I mean, the, to some extent, uh, the, the stories, the coverage, I'm not claiming they're not real. I'm not claiming they're fake. The coverage of the migrants, what's normalized is omission, practically across the board, ongoing, of why the migrants are moving. They're moving because their homes are being destroyed. And anybody who's just seen a few pictures uh, out of Damascus or other places in Syria, will realize, I mean, it looks like World War II stuff. It looks like Hamburg looked after the Allied bombers uh, did their bombing. And, and so somehow that gets lost in the shuffle, even, and especially among people who are just anti-immigrant, and that's as far as their vision goes. And so uh, I wouldn't call it a development so much as a normalization 
of a twisted worldview that doesn't take into account the depredations of the American empire, which uh, Michael Springman does. I myself would, would say, and I recently heard a talk on CBC radio uh, of a, a conference in Vancouver last November at University of British Columbia uh, by uh, a marvelous uh, Brit uh, who talked about how the global arms trade is really, you know, the tail that wags the dog of national external policies in the USA especially, but also even to some extent in Canada where we go on selling weapons to Saudi Arabia even when they're bombing Yemen. So the, this arms trade is a horrible cancer, which is right at the center of the problems we face on planet Earth. And that, that's, I'd like to see a lot more emphasis on that. I'd like to see any emphasis on it. Barry Wiswicker, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Michael. And we've been speaking with Barry Zwicker, veteran print and broadcast journalist and media critic. His review of J. Michael Springman's book is available at the site truthandshadows.wordpress.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. J. Michael Springman is a former diplomat and whistleblower. He formerly worked as an officer at the Visa Office in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where he saw CIA officials routinely approving unqualified candidates granted visas for travel to the United States. He's the author of the 2014 book, Visas for Al-Qaeda, CIA Handouts That Rock the World, An Insider's View. Uh, Springman has also authored the 2017 book, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb. Uh, he joins us now from Washington, D.C. Uh, thanks, and welcome again to the Global Research News Hour. Well, I'm happy to have you uh, have me interviewed and then talk to your listeners. I, I very much enjoy that. I'm quite honored and pleased that you contacted me. Okay. Now, in your previous book, you spoke about how higher-ups at the Jeddah uh, office, the visa office out of which you worked, were allowing unqualified people to get visas to travel to America. How did that background inform your current understanding of the mass migration uh, to Europe uh, phenomenon as a weapon of destabilization. Is there a natural bridge there? Yes, it is. It's a, the, the second book is a kind of a follow-on from the first. Uh, in the first book, I went through how the, um, the Americans created and uh, supported and um, uh, expanded upon the um, what I call the Arab-African um, uh, legion, and it basically it was the Mujahideen in Iraq, uh, I'm sorry, in Afghanistan, that was moved to Yugoslavia, and then to Iraq, and then to uh, Libya, and then Syria. And, and you know, may, may not have been the same guys, may have been people they trained, uh, but essentially it was the, uh, the worst possible people they could find to engage in these activities. And I, I went through the first book, uh, country by country, uh, in separate chapters, talking about uh, how these people acted, how they were connected, where their support came from, and things like this. 
And the second book, which I had been urged to write by a, a woman uh, from the Balkans, in fact, uh, who had grown up in Germany, said, this is a hot topic, you need to write on this right now. And I delayed it a year because I was busy promoting the first book. But uh, when I looked at the issue, I could see that, well, yeah, it, it's, uh, what's happened is that uh, we wreck these countries uh, all the way uh, in South Asia, Southwest Asia, North Africa, uh, uh, dropped a hail of bombs and, and uh, drones and uh, artillery shells on the um, the countries, essentially destroying their uh, infrastructure, getting rid of the factories, the homes, the schools, waterworks, sewage treatment plants, roads, bridges, and so forth. And then the uh, the people there that were in these uh, countries uh, were carefully herded out of them uh, instead of. Um, uh, stopping the wars instead of taking the money they were using to wage the wars and, and rebuild the economies and help these people by setting up um, refugee camps in the countries or next to them, as is normal practice, uh, they were herded into Europe. Uh, and uh, Angela Merkel uh, welcomed them all. She uh, just said, yes, you all come. And uh, what happened was you had a million migrants uh, make their way into Germany and uh, more into other benefit-rich countries of uh, the rest of Europe, like France or Norway or Sweden or Denmark or Austria. And uh, they either went through Turkey and up through the Balkans, uh, or they went by sea across to Italy and to Greece and places like this. And uh, uh, these were people that had no ties really to Europe. Uh, and had more ties to Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and Kuwait uh, than they did to uh, Germany or France or Italy. So you know, you sort of wonder what's going on here uh, with the um, uh, the countries that they have an affinity through religion and culture and history and so forth won't touch them with a ten foot pole or a twelve foot Hungarian. Uh, but somehow uh, they all participate in uh, moving them into Europe. Uh, the uh, Qataris were printing um, uh, false Syrian passports. Uh, the Saudis were financing a lot of this, uh, and it, it just went from bad to worse. You had various intelligence agencies involved. Uh, you know, in, in Syria, for example, in a country that's essentially destroyed, where you're worrying more about uh, getting something to eat rather than time to pray, uh, somehow they're producing... Um, uh, nearly perfect counterfeit passports. And these people that are doing this are being watched by the intelligence services. And somehow they can't seem to find them once uh, the uh, the people get going and get moving. And you wonder who's involved, what's involved. And you find big American companies like Cisco Systems setting up Wi-Fi networks in the Balkans to help these people navigate and use their iPhones and their fancy cell phones, their smartphones, uh, to find smugglers, to use uh, the Internet uh, and Facebook to communicate with one another, uh, to learn how much it costs to get a smuggler to get them into Bulgaria or from Bulgaria to Austria or wherever. And yet uh, nobody questions this. You have these organizations like Mercy Corps and um, um, NetHope and a few other things. Uh, they are... Uh, working for a long time in American organized conflict areas. They had been in, in Afghanistan, they had been in Iraq, and suddenly now they're all involved in bringing the migrants into Europe. You mentioned also in the book that there's also some support from the United States for people trying to cross the Mediterranean. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got uh, uh, people fronting money for these, these uh, brand-new rubber boats, brand-new um, 
outboard motors, and it comes from somewhere, and it's got to come from the United States, uh, among other countries. Uh, there was a French woman who was an uh, honorary consul, I think, in Turkey, uh, who said that, well, yeah, this has been going on, and they, you know the Americans are doing this. I think it was, um, uh, what was the organization? Uh, Thierry Messan was writing for uh, uh, the Voltaire Net, that's it, uh, writing about this. And then uh, Geroido Colmain had mentioned this as well in, in, in some of his research and some of his writing. So it's, uh, you know, it's basically a continuation of more of the same. We've wrecked these countries. Now we can wreck the European countries by driving these people into them uh, on the basis of what um, Kelly Greenhill wrote in his, her book, Weapons of Mass Migration, where what you do to weaken a country is to deprive it of its population, drive it out, move it out, uh, through wrecking uh, the economy or attacks or whatever reason. And then you wreck the country that absorbs these migrants because they're suddenly hit with hundreds of thousands, or in Germany's case, a million or more, uh, people that have no connection to the country. They have to be fed, clothed, housed, and then uh, given some kind of support. Uh, and uh, this creates stress financially, and of course it creates stress socially because you've got... Uh, the migrants who are not happy about trying to uh, move into these countries, uh, they're giving up their culture. They're, in a way, they're, they're the real victims because these people, uh, they, they don't speak German, they don't speak French or Italian or, or Norwegian or whatever. And, and, of course, there's no Dari or, or Arabic or Pashtun speakers in, the, in these countries in Europe. So you've got to absorb them and deal with them and take these people's culture away from them, uh, while at the same time you've got the groups in the, uh, in the European countries who uh, either welcome them with candy and flowers, or you've got people who are saying, well, wait a minute, this is our country. We get to decide who comes in and who gets to stay out, and we want to understand what's going on. We just don't simply drop our uh, uh, immigration laws simply to accommodate American policy in the Middle East. Uh, Mike, could you help us understand the, the argument here? Because mm -hmm. uh, I think most people are aware that we got all these migrants coming from these countries that are mm -hmm. being devastated, but they would think of the migrant flows as a side effect, as an mm -hmm. unhappy consequence. What you and, and Kelly Greenhill that you've cited are arguing is that that the migrant flows themselves are a weapon of destabilization. That's a deliberate strategy. Mm -hmm. could, could, I mean, and you mentioned something like about the, the funding and the, yeah. the whatnot, but could you maybe just help to cement that point to, to some maybe skeptical listeners? Sure. You have these things which Kelly Greenhill calls coercion costs. And what happens in, in, in these instances is you've got uh, the countries which are to absorb the migrants. Uh, they've signed agreements on asylum. They've signed agreements on refugees. They've signed agreements on accommodating people who uh, uh, can't possibly return home because of persecution. And... Uh, the migrants play upon this, the people driving the migrants play upon this by saying, well, look, you've signed this agreement, you've signed that agreement, you've signed another agreement, uh, you are duty-bound to honor these agreements, and you're supposed to forget about your border controls. And this is really the rub. Uh, in the case of uh, Europe, you had this um, Dublin agreement, uh, which said that when a migrant comes into a country and seeks asylum uh, in the European Union, they don't get asylum anywhere else in the European Union. They get it in the first country in which they land, in 
in this case has turned out to be Greece and maybe Italy, and they've been heavily burdened with these uh, numbers of migrants. And uh, it's, it's wrecked their economies, it's wrecked their society. And you've got uh, this, this thing going on in the background of, well, what about this? You, you signed this agreement, you, uh, you promised uh, to let somebody in genuinely claiming asylum. And what you've got instead is people who are economic refugees, people who are opportunistic refugees. Uh, you've got criminal refugees, whether they're out and out criminals uh, like murder, rape, bank robbery, and so on, or criminals in the terrorist sense, uh, as uh, we saw in, in, in France not too long ago, and uh, as we've seen in, uh, in Germany. So it's uh, uh, a, a two-edged sword, and this grew out of the, the idea, for example, in uh, Korea, they wanted to destabilize North Korea by encouraging uh, the citizens to move into China or into South Korea, and both the Chinese and the South Koreans balked at this. They said, well, look, you know, we're, we're not an open-ended uh, migrant society for opportunists. That was in the 1990s? Uh, I think so. Yeah. It, was a while, it was a while ago. And in fact, one of the guys uh, who masterminded this program for Korea uh, was a German who had uh, seen the fall of the Berlin Wall and thought this might be useful uh, precedent for uh, what could be done with Korea to move people out to cause a destabilization and collapse of the North Korean government. Interesting. Now, of course, when you bring up the example of Korea, uh, there is, I think there's an important distinction in that the Koreans, until not that long ago, were a united people. Uh, how does that example inform the, the much more different migrations uh, to Europe by elements of the, mm -hmm. you know, Africa, Middle East, where, mm -hmm. where you don't have the same, uh, you know, alignments. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened with, with North Korea was that when the South Koreans, the Chinese refused to accept the refugees, refused to accept the migrants, the program eventually ended. Uh, in the case of uh, the migrants that are being moved into Europe from all over the um, the Arab and Muslim world and elsewhere. I mean, sub-Saharan Africa is now pouring into Europe. Uh, you've got um, people saying, well, y'all come. Well, we, we can't stop them. They're, they're fleeing dictatorships. They're fleeing bad economic situations. They're fleeing this and they're fleeing that. And uh, the entire world can't move to Europe. Europe has been a pretty much a, um, not a closed society, but a, a um, multicultural society of Frenchmen, Germans, Italians, and so forth. Um, but it's been a society that's been more or less stable for the last thousand or so years. Uh, they've always spoken French, they've always spoken Norwegian, and so forth. And now they're asked to absorb people who can't really fit in and who were never asked to fit in. They were driven out of their homes, they were driven out of their countries. And instead of taking the money that's uh, being squandered in these wars to rebuild their countries, to create a Marshall Plan of sorts for them, uh, you've got people saying, well, we must make Europe more multicultural. You've got the uh, the former Attorney General of Ireland, this is Peter Sutherland, who is a fellow who um, is now uh, with the um, uh, United Nations Office of Migration. And in the past, he'd been with BP, he'd been with the Bilderberg Group, he'd been with the Trilateral Society. And now he wants to make Europe more multicultural, as did uh, Merkel, as did... Uh, this Gerald Knaus, uh, who had uh, been running a think tank in Austria. The European Security Initiative? Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. And uh, then you had uh, Dutch politicians like Mark Rutte, the current prime minister, 
and a fellow named Diedrich Samson, who uh, worked out the program to take a quarter of a million migrants a year from Turkey into Europe, uh, primarily into Germany. They worked with Merkel on this and uh, made it a done deal. And the, the Germans, of course, are furious. The Germans I know in Germany are mad as hell, and it's from the guy in the street on up to well-educated, well-connected businessmen. Hmm. I wonder how much of this uh, discussion, uh, when we talk about the, the the destabilization that's taking place, hmm. how much of this is about uh, just the idea of like the, the the basic idea of, of flooding Europe with the idea of bad planning, like maybe with a better integration plan, this could be uh, better achieved. Whereas there was no plan; they just opened the doors and people mm-hmm. rushed in. I mean, is is it possible to make that distinction, or, or is this just yes and no? I mean, they they were forced out of their homes, but they were guided to Europe. They weren't guided to Saudi Arabia. They weren't guided to Israel. They weren't guided to Bahrain. Uh, it would have been better in, to have to plan it to have camps set up in the countries where the people were, were fleeing, and to deal with refugees on that basis uh, right there in situ. And now Merkel apparently is coming around to this, as is other parts of the European Union, that they're thinking, well, gee, maybe we should uh, go to these people and, and deal with them and their issues and uh, sort the sheep from the goats. Uh, in their own countries rather than here in the middle of uh, Braunschweig or Rome or uh, Salamanca. Hmm. I feel that, uh, I mean, I, I'm a Canadian, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, as a Canadian, uh, I'm uh, among many citizens haunted by memories of, uh, you know, back around the time of the Second World War, Jews mm-hmm. fleeing the Holocaust, and we had a none is too many uh, policy with regard to Jewish mm-hmm. migrants. And so, uh, I, I we uh, perhaps in response, you know, have a tendency to want to embrace people who are fleeing persecution, uh, especially you know if we de- have some role in generating those refugee mm-hmm. flows in the first place. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe, what would you say to you know other listeners uh, when, when they look at these migrant floods mm-hmm. and, and feel a, a distaste mm-hmm. for the, the the kind of xenophobic attitudes that seem to be rising in Europe? Well, I'd say a couple of things. I went round and round recently with a British Muslim, a convert to Islam, and uh, uh, she was critical of me uh, saying things like I've said in my book and uh, things that the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has said. Um, And she said, we should forget about this, we should welcome them, we should avoid othering. And I went back and I told her, look, this is calculated. Uh, it's patterned on the American system where the United States destroyed, uh, invaded, uh, regime changed uh, just about every country south of the, the border with Mexico and, the, and in the Caribbean as well, and uh, drove these people out of the countries, destroyed the countries, disrupted the countries, eliminated the working societies, and then brought them north uh, for cheap labor. Uh, these people will work for almost nothing just to have a job, and uh, they're very, very malleable because they are simply told by the, uh, their slave bosses that, well, you give us any trouble, uh, we'll call immigration and send you back where you came from. And there's also the idea of, of votes. Uh, the Americans love the idea of having all these people in the country, and nobody knows how many of these people are voting for the Democratic Party, which is welcoming them. Uh, the same thing is happening in Europe. Uh, the, that 
attitude, plus the attitude of, well, gee, we don't have enough Native Europeans now with a high enough birth rate to support our social welfare structure. So let's bring in 800 or 800,000 or a million uh, workers uh, to make more Germans, to make more Italians, to make more Norwegians, and uh, also to pay into the social welfare system and keep it going. Uh, so we'll have a, a two-for-one deal, and uh, they don't seem to realize that you've got integration costs of, of teaching uh, a European language to people whose language is, uh, is Dari or uh, Arabic or some other tongue. Uh, and there's no pile of um, uh, of these language speakers in Europe. There's no uh, native culture to take them in. And uh, you've got the idea of, well, yeah, they'll, they'll eventually integrate, but the problem is uh, one German economist figured it would cost a trillion U.S. dollars uh, to bring these people up to speed because uh, what's coming in is not family groupings for the most part. It's mostly young single men. And while some of them are well-educated, well-connected, and have useful skills, uh, I've, I've seen a couple of um, uh, success stories where the, the guy was a Syrian um, eye doctor who did very well for himself. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of connections, and eventually made it to Germany and did quite well. But Europe now, you, you've got this modern society that doesn't depend on uh, shoveling um, coal and... and uh, uh, Coke and, and, and things into blast furnaces to make steel, uh, you've got very high-tech societies uh, where you're making, um, in the case of uh, Carl Zeiss in Germany, uh, space program mirrors that if they were the size of the Lake of Constance, uh, which is maybe 100 miles long, uh, you wouldn't have a couple of millimeters difference from one end to the other. So, uh, you know, this is not what the guy from... Um, uh, the backwoods of Syria or someplace deep in the sub-Saharan Africa uh, is able to bring to Europe. and um, But somehow they get there. They have the money to do it. Uh, you know, they have a year's, two years' wages for some guy from Mali. Uh, it would cost him to get smuggled into Europe. Well, you know, where does the money come from? He certainly doesn't have it. Somebody's backing this. Mm. And nobody's asking the questions why or what's happening. Uh, and I think also one of the things behind this is that it helps it to weaken Europe. Europe, a united Europe, would be a really good competitor for the United States. And I think American policy has always been to keep Germany weak, and they fear German technology, intelligence, education, uh, and know-how uh, linked with the vast amount of Russian natural resources and into making a really powerful um, economy. Mm. And I don't think the Americans like that. Okay, maybe we could try to tally up the who benefits from this uh, uh, situation. Mm -hmm. uh, that the, the you know I guess you could say evaporation of mm -hmm. national borders into this one big uh, Euro, Euro European space. Mm -hmm. I mean, you did mention uh, cheap labor, so mm -hmm. industrialists benefit. Yeah. and uh, you're suggesting that the American Empire benefits. Yeah, they they see a weakened Europe, uh, they see a weakened Middle East, North Africa. And why uh, would America be, what 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 what's in it for America to see Europe weakened? Well, a Europe is competition, a unified solid uh Europe with uh, strong economies and strong democracies uh would be a real competitor for the United States. And I think also you've got the Israel mix in the equation. Uh, they have the Yunon plan, which essentially was worked out years ago, 
to ensure that uh, to keep Israel strong, we need Arab countries around us weak. And this is happening. They're moving people out of uh, Syria. The, the economy is destroyed. They've moved people out of Libya. They've moved people out of Iraq. Uh, at one point, there were 4 million um, Iraqis, either uh, 2 million internally displaced and 2 million abroad. Um, half the population of Syria now is outside the country. Uh, so uh, you've got a very weak uh, Arab uh, and Muslim world there. Uh, the Israelis are working very hard to uh, ensure that uh, Syria comes apart. Uh, they're firing missiles and rockets and bombs into uh, the country, hitting Hezbollah, hitting uh, uh, Iranian advisors, uh, hitting the, uh, the Syrian army. Uh, so uh, it benefits Israel as well, and of course Israel and the United States are tied uh, to the point where Israel is either the 51st state or America is the uh, westernmost province of Israel. So that's in the mix as well, and nobody wants to talk about that. As well, there's the rise of uh, these uh, right-wing, alt-right, nationalist-type uh, political parties that mm -hmm. seem to be capitalizing on public uh, discontent or, or distrust of this influx of migrants. Exactly. It, it's happened in France with Marine Le Pen getting about a third of the vote in the first round of the presidential election. Uh, Germany's um, ruling coalition got hammered in the, the elections last fall with both the Christian Democratic Union, uh, the center-right, and the, the Socialist Party of Germany, the center-left, getting their worst drubbing uh, in um, uh, the history of the post-war Germany, uh, the Alternative for Germany party came out of nowhere to get 13% of the vote, more in the old East Germany, close to 20 or 30%. Austria now has a, um, a new right-wing government creating problems for um, Merkel and her uh, parceling out of the migrants. Um, Italy uh, is another country that's got a, a government elected opposed to the unending migrant stream. And uh, they're refusing entry into Italian ports of these rescue ships, mostly German, that pick up migrants at sea and carrying them to Europe. Slovenia uh, has now a new elected government that's anti-migrant. And in Sweden, uh, the uh, anti-migrant Sweden Democrats, uh, according to some polls I've seen, uh, is almost even with the ruling Social Democrat Party. Uh, and uh, they've got upcoming elections in September, which is, what, uh, two months away from now? So, uh, you know, there, there are, the, the right is, is making gains because the left is a disaster. They have no program other than bring in more migrants and have no idea what to do with them once they're there. Hmm. So, uh, what, I mean, you're, I guess the title of your book, it says, you know, Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos. And with question mark. Seeing, Yeah. And so, uh, do, do you see the situation? I mean, you're mentioning with the rise of these uh, right-wing parties. Mm -hmm. uh, are, are, are you seeing any counter-indications that, uh, that maybe some kind of a return to uh, order or, or some kind of accommodation can possibly be made? Uh, I mean, the, the Korean example is an indication mm -hmm. that, that that strategy didn't seem to work. But is there, you know, a, a way out of this trap? Well, the, the rise of the right-wing parties is pushing the rest of the, the governments there to consider their policies and um, uh, think about doing something about the unending migrant stream. They had an arrangement with Turkey to take a quarter of a million migrants every year. And uh, then people are saying, well, why do we need to do this? Uh, can't we put up controls somewhere other than uh, in the middle of Germany or in the middle of Austria? 
let's put up the controls outside of Europe and then, and then think, uh, well, who is the real refugee? Who is the real asylee? And make decisions then rather than let them into the country and then find out that, uh, oh, in the case of, uh, I think it was in Sweden, they uh, had a guy who was refused asylum by, uh, being in there and he went berserk in an IKEA store, uh, took out a big butcher knife and cut off the head of a woman and her son. Uh-huh. Uh, same thing happened to a guy in uh, in Germany uh, in a uh, subway station. Uh, he was from a migrant from Niger, and he stabbed his wife to death and cut off the head of one of their children because his request for asylum had been refused. So if you if you have this these controls outside of the country and let in genuine people who have real fears of persecution uh, because of race or uh, ethnic group or political opinion. Uh, as the UN um, uh, treaty states and as the American law states, uh, then you might have something to work with. But uh, they're only gradually coming around to this once they've seen that uh, uh, there are alternatives to uh, the traditional um, center uh, political power that's been ruling in Europe since the end of the war. Okay, I, I got time for one last question, mm-hmm. uh, and I, it, it basically one of the things that you state in the book is that we got to stop bombing these countries yeah. and uh, and destabilizing that, mm-hmm. so you de- generating those flows in the first place. Are, mm-hmm. are people in Europe making that connection? No, so they aren't. They're that's, not. That's what slays me. Uh, they they focus on the migrants solely, and will not jump from there to well, what's causing this? They just didn't didn't pick up, pack up one morning and say, well, I'm going to leave Damascus or Halab or uh, whatever town they're coming from and say, well, I'm going to go to Germany or Sweden or Denmark. Uh, they, they just don't see this. Uh, and then the Europeans, in fact, because of these questionable uh, terrorist attacks in France and elsewhere, uh, they're drawn into the wars in the Middle East with the French sending their nuclear-powered aircraft carrier to show the goal uh, to bomb uh, Iraq and, and Syria, the British sending uh, warplanes to do the same thing, and the Germans sending more warships to the Mediterranean. One went as an escort to the uh, to the goal. So uh, uh, they've got to make the connection, and they don't. And they don't seem to realize that the real victims in all this are the migrants themselves. They've been pushed out of their own countries that have been destroyed. Their cultures have been wrecked. Their uh, economy has been wrecked. Their infrastructure has been wrecked. And suddenly they're being pushed into another uh, continent uh, with which they have no connections and uh, told to conform or else. The book is Goodbye Europe, Hello Chaos, Merkel's Migrant Bomb. The author is J. Michael Springman and uh, the publisher is Dayina Publications. Thank you so much, uh, J. Michael Springman, for being our guest. I really appreciate the opportunity. I thank you very much. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download our program from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. We've reached the end of another season of the Global Research News Hour. During the summer break, we'll be airing special content. We'll return to our regular format in September. I've been series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Bye for now.